text. Actually, I think we're going to do something a little bit different. It's, we're going to we have one text as we dive into unconditional election tonight. And really, all we'd have to do is basically uh, know this verse, and we could finish it right there. So I think we're just going to say it together, and that is John three sixteen. All right, are we ready? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I ask your blessing upon it tonight. Lord, help me to be effective at teaching this. I pray that you'd help me to teach with clarity tonight. And Lord, may the truth of your word be clear. May it be helpful. May we see the truth of salvation. And Lord how your word clearly teaches you desire all men to be saved. And Lord, we love you for that, and we thank you for that. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we started this several weeks ago. First, the first lesson coming through Calvinism was on just an overview, introducing you to who John Calvin was as a man, his story, um, and, again, just giving a basic overview of what Calvinism is about. And then we begin to dive into the tulip itself, first starting off with the T of the tulip, the total depravity of man, and how, and how they define, it's not that we disagree, man is totally depraved. That's not what's at question. The question is how that is defined. And so we looked at their definition of total depravity and how they concluded it meant an inability of man uh, to be able to come to Christ. That man is completely enabled that without the work of regeneration, that they, man would never come to Christ. Because they look at it, I gave the example of some of their authors, they look at it as a dead body, which they look at it from a secular definition of death and not a scriptural definition of death. Death is not an end of existence. It is not. It means separation, actually. It's when the soul separates the body, that's when physical death occurs. So we looked at the fallacies of that, how man certainly is depraved and wicked and vile, but that does not mean he has an inability to seek God. So again, we, we studied that, how they taught that regeneration precedes faith, that a person is born again before he's ever saved. And we saw that is found nowhere in Scripture. Nowhere in Scripture, excuse me, that regeneration comes after faith. It does not precede faith. And then we began uh, uh, last week looking at unconditional election, which is obviously one of the key of, of the tulip. It is central to it. It is an important doctrine. Let me give out the definition once again. And this is from the canons of Dort of one of their definitions of unconditional election says, the unchangeable purpose of God, whereby before the foundation of the world, he hath out of mere grace, according to the sovereign good pleasure of his own will, chosen from the whole human race a certain number of persons to redemption in Christ. The teaching is simple. If anyone is to be saved, it's simply because they are elected unto salvation, that God has chosen them, that without that taking place, you will never, ever be saved. That it is only the elect that are saved. And so we're going to be diving much more into unconditional election here this evening. And tonight I will be focusing primarily on their proof text. 
on the major text of Scripture that if you were to go through a book on this or hear it taught on, these are the verses they would use to support the idea of unconditional election that God chooses some for heaven while uh, the others are then chosen for destruction or hell. Now, as we already saw with the verse that we quoted tonight by diving into this, the Bible clearly teaches whosoever will. That nowhere in Scripture, and we're going to see that tonight, even in their proof text, is it ever a select few that was predetermined by God of who would be saved and then thus who would be damned with no hope. The question is not, can God show mercy and grace to whomsoever he will? God certainly can do that. That is a true statement. He can. He's God. There's no way that I could question that as his creation. The question is, unto whom has God declared to show mercy and truth unto? That's where the question lies. The answer that we see in Scripture is it is whosoever. Whosoever comes to Christ in faith. That is who God has declared, has decreed. You can use whatever word you want then for that. That God has clearly declared that whosoever, through repentance and faith in Christ, shall be saved. That is what God has determined. We see this throughout Scripture. Let's look over. Let's look at just several of these tonight. I think it's good to see those in Scripture. I'm going to start off. Uh, there's many places we can go. I'll start off with John 7:37. In the last day, uh, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, Here's the Savior. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. If any man. That's the teaching throughout Scripture. Flip over a couple of pages to John chapter 10. Then Jesus, verse 7, Then Jesus spake unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, uh, he shall be saved. He shall go in and out and find pasture. It's throughout the Word of God. Look over in 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. This, all these verses just settle it. It is, it is truly mind-boggling to me, the endless contradictions that come about in Calvinism that they just use semantics to gloss over. Words like mystery of God then. Um, look, at, look at this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4. Speaking of God, verse 3, the context is God, who will have all men to be saved and come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And then we have, look at, even the Bible finishes, look at Revelation 22. The Bible finishes with a whosoever. Verse 17. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that athirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Just incredible. 
So they get around that by saying, see, whosoever will. The only reason they have the will is because they were regenerated by God, because they were totally depraved, and so God gave them the ability, that's why they will to do it. But as we saw, the Bible nowhere, nowhere, not one single time does it teach regeneration before faith. Man is totally depraved, but that does not mean he has an inability to seek God. The scriptures never teach that. It's clear the Bible lays out, and we've already looked at it, why man doesn't seek God, because of his pride, because of his sin. It's, it's, it's not because he has an inability to do it. Man has the ability to do it. <clears throat> um, of course, the popular one that we all, and, and, it, and it's very true and works, like it's 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse number 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Incredible. Again, we can go in Acts 10 when Peter is preaching to Cornelius in the conclusion that God it was a whosoever will there as well. And you say, well, how do they, they know this is in Scripture? Many of these are students of Scripture. So, again, how do they get around this? How do they get around the word all when God would have all men to be saved? Again, they apply that to just the elect. They like to narrow that down to just the elect. And that gets into the, tying in a little bit to the L. You see how all these are interlinked together. If one falls, they all fall. They all have to be true or none of it's true. You can see how that ties into limited atonement. And so they believe that all is just those who Christ has died for. That it excludes those who are outside of it. But the Bible doesn't teach that in any way, shape, or form. It does not. Look over a text that I love, and that is Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Again, I believe I went over Romans 5 a little bit in the overview of this. This was the text that I used when I was uh, a debate online with a Calvinist. Look at verse 17. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which received abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Verse 18. Therefore, as by one offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation. This is so clear here. The all right here. Is it true that all are sinners and under condemnation? It is. Even the Calvinists 100% agree with that. Here's their nightmare. Finish the verse. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Contextually speaking, there is no way you can limit that all to the Elect. And we'll look what the elect actually is here tonight. <clears throat> Election in the Bible is never to salvation. It's always to service and blessing. For instance, look over, since we're in Romans, look at Romans chapter 8. Let's just turn over a couple of pages. Let's go to Romans chapter 8, verse 29 right now. We talked last week at one of the errors that you get into in Calvinism when it comes to unconditional election and the belief they had that multitudes of Calvinists teach that the only reason God is omniscient, all-knowing, is because he determined what would happen. That creates all kinds of problems for him, which means then that God has predetermined sin. 
Now, moderate Calvinists like to say that's the only, only the hyper-Calvinists that teach that. But the truth is, if you follow it, to me, I just call them more honest Calvinists. They come to the obvious conclusions using, uh, which is hard to use deductive reasoning in Calvinism, but nonetheless, they conclude if this is true, then this has to be true. And they would be right in that sense. That if this is true, then God would be the author of sin. But we know that he is not. And so, anyhow, you come to verse 29 here, Romans chapter 8, where it deals with this, for whom he did foreknow. He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his dear son. Look what he predestinated here. By the way, uh, let me get back to, I'm, I'm sorry, I've left off the main thought there. God knows everything because he's God, not because he already decreed what would happen. He is all-knowing. But he predestinated us to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. That's true. That before the foundation of the world, God determined that all those, and God does know who would come to faith in Christ. That's without question. He's all-knowing. But what he predetermined was that they should be conformed to the image of his dear son. God knows ahead of time what all men would do. Calvinism, Calvinism teaches the elect man is not, is not capable of turning into God because he, the non-elect man is not capable because he's totally depraved. It's impossible until, unless he is one of the elect, which is, is just amazing. I want you to think about this. If that is true, I'm tying, again, all these tie together. So I'm, dealing, I'm mixing total depravity here with unconditional election. I want you to think about this. We're going through the book of Romans right now, are we not? Romans chapter 1. If man has a complete inability and it's determined solely by election, then why does God talk in Romans chapter 1 of the greatness of creation to try and pull men to Christ? There's no need. I mean, he's dead. He has an inability to seek God. It doesn't matter how great creation is. He will never seek God according to their teaching. That he's so depraved, he has an inability. There's no way, I don't care when he looks at the ocean, when he looks at the stars, when he looks at the mountains, he'll never be able to seek God. That is nonsense. And how unjust. Amazing how the Calvinists see no injustice and no contradiction in this. Obviously, they cannot, or they'd have to admit the error of the doctrine. By the way, John Calvin himself, when it came to unconditional election, this, is, this should just stop some of them in their tracks. I've read it myself in the Institutes. He admitted in the Institute, this decree here of unconditional election is, quote, dreadful. To ignore this, shows the lack of love that God is. They covered up over and over with words like mystery. That's what John Calvin does. So they all just sort of follow him. And he got that from Augustine, by the way. Remember, his writings were basically commentary on the writings of Augustine, who he fell in love with before he had left the Catholic Church. So now, ooh, time is... Quickly going. We'll see if we'll get through this. We might not get through all of it. But let's, let's start going through the, their common strongholds for unconditional election in the Bible. Their proof text for it. Let's start off with 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2.
verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. So this is, this is one of the proof texts, and I'm going to build, I'm going to get to the stronger proof text as we go on, culminating in Romans chapter 9. But this one is one of the verses that they love. And there's several things here. You can, you, you can perhaps notice some of the errors in trying to tie an unconditional election just by the reading. So first, one of the biggest questions we have to answer is, what is from the beginning? Under Calvinist teaching, that is before the foundation of the world. But that's not at all what Paul is saying here. So the beginning of what? Again, if you're a Calvinist, you view this verse with the presupposition of before the foundation of the world. You're viewing it through your Calvinistic glasses. It does not say before the foundation of the world. So what would Paul be talking about? Do we have something in Scripture where we know what Paul means when he's referring to the beginning at the church at Thessalonica? We do. Look at Philippians chapter 4. Verses 15 and 16. So there's two parts of this verse we're going to cover. First is, what does Paul mean by the, in the beginning? And the context, of, uh, remember, we went through Second Thessalonians. The context just bears this right out. It's not difficult. Now, you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica, sent once and again unto my, uh, my necessity. What Paul is referring to by the beginning there, he's not talking about before the foundation of the world. He's talking about the beginning of a second missionary journey when he came into Europe. That's defined right here in Scripture. Where did he go? He went to Philippi, then Thessalonica. He's referring back to the beginning at that time. And the word chosen here, you can see what it's talking about in the verse. God has chosen you to salvation through how you would be saved. Sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. That is exactly what God has chosen. That salvation, to sum it up in my words, in Christ alone. That that's how men would be saved. So, again, remember this. Faith when it does come to those who are gods, faith is what gets you into that group. Not a defined decree from an election from before time began. It is faith in Christ. That once that takes place, you're in that group. You're in that chosen group once you come to Christ. And the verse is clearly teaching the means of salvation. Again, not through a decree of God, but through sanctification of the Spirit and the belief in the truth. The beginning is referred to when he came into Macedonia, when these churches were getting started. In that beginning, that's when they got saved. Now, let's go to Ephesians chapter 1.
verses 4 and 5. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. For those that are in Calvinism, this is one of their strongest texts when it does come to the doctrine of election. Many of them like to say that next to Romans chapter 9 that there's not a more important proof text that they have for the, for the doctrine. The key to understanding this verse lies in the phrase, right as it begins, according as. All right? That's going to help us unlock this verse. Because of how it starts with according as, that directs you back to the previous verse. So let's look at that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in in heavenly places in Christ. This is a letter written to the churches at Ephesus to those who are already saved. All right? Again, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, colon, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before him in love. So let's go through this. This verse does not deal with being chosen by God to salvation, but being chosen by God to a certain position in Christ. Chosen to spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And He has chosen us to be holy and without blame. That as a result of salvation, there are things that God has put in place for those who come to Christ that God has chosen. The spiritual blessings I have, my status that I have with Christ, just as it says here, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. That's what God has chosen. Verse 5. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to His good pleasure of His will. Verse 5 deals with God choosing us to a certain, uh, a, a certain position for us again in Christ. Not salvation. He's chosen us unto adoption. It is what God has chosen, the same pattern of verse 4, to those who would come to Christ. This is what we receive. This is what God has chosen we will get. The word adoption deals with position, not relationship here. It deals with our legal status as sons of God. It deals with privilege, not nature. Regeneration dealt with the nature of our new birth. This is getting into the legal side of the house that God has chosen for those who come to Christ. You can look at it like this. Regeneration deals with our nature. Justification, our standing. Sanctification, our character. And adoption, our position. These... This is what God has chosen. Uh, The blessings that we have in heavenly places in Christ, that we should be holy without blame. And he has also chosen that those who are in Christ have this position of adoption. There is obviously great blessings when we become a Christian because God has chosen it to be so. God predetermined to do just that. This is why when you get in the book of Romans, uh, at Romans, the start of chapter 6, 
I mean, God knew this before the foundation of the world, what he would do for those who came to faith in Christ. This is why it says, where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. Why did, uh, why did he choose to give us these great blessings and places of service? Now the answer applies. To the pleasure of his good will. There's where you can see it all making sense. Of why God put this together. How he ordained it. How we tied it together. Does that not make more sense than God sending billions to hell because of the pleasure of his good will? The correct meaning lines perfectly up with the character of God. All right, let's, we'll get into one more of these. I have about three or four left. We'll tie in one more. First Peter, chapter 1. Verse 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. <clears throat> this, as you can see, is, is going to be one of their mainstay verses when it comes to the doctrine of unconditional election. Much comes down to looking at what is elect here. The word elect is often used as showing worth, a, a, a name given to those with value before God. Let me try, let me, let me, let's put this election in regards to salvation. Turn over to Romans chapter 8. Let me ask a simple question based on Salvation 101 before we look at this verse. When it comes to a person being justified, the doctrine of justification, just justification come before salvation or after salvation? After salvation. That is when you are justified. All right. Look at verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that, what? Justifieth. Now here, the elect are justified. You say, okay, I get that. They would agree with that. Here's the issue. A person who is elect, according to the doctrine of Calvinism, happens from the moment of conception. Before justification. Are you following the logic right now? But scripturally, you're not elect, given this place by God, until salvation takes place. It's when justification happens. That's when it's going to come into play. 
As we see in context, God's elect are justified. Again, according to Calvinism, this would mean that even those who have not trusted Christ yet are justified already because they're elect. That is absurd. It demonstrates the purpose of that verse is how they do not use the word elect correctly. One becomes elect after salvation. This verse, what it does, it shows how one becomes elect. And that is through faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It demonstrates how that takes place. Not through a predetermined decree do we get that special value of God as His. But when we have come to Christ through His sacrifice on the cross and what His blood accomplished. Now, you are part of that. That's when that comes into play. And so we have several more verses here to look at, but I'll, I'll, I'll pause there. Oh, actually, just two more. But Romans 9 will take a little bit more, so I'll wait on that. We'll, we'll, we'll dive into Acts 13, 48, and then we'll get into Romans chapter 9. All right, I know that, obviously, as we go through Calvinism, that's a little bit different for us um, than just regular preaching. But nonetheless, maybe there's, there's some things that you're battling you need to come pray about. We still want to give opportunity for people to respond and pray if there's some things going on. And also, if there's anyone here, um, whether you, you're a member here, you've been coming for years, or you're a visitor here, I never want to leave without that opportunity for salvation. Because one day you will die and stand before Christ. That day will come. It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. That is Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27. You will die and stand before God, and Almighty God will judge you. The problem is you're guilty. You'll be found guilty. You're just like I am. You're a liar. You're a thief. You're a, you have struggled with covetousness. You put things before God, therefore you be an idolater. <laughs> 